herzlich willkommen. Hello and a warm welcome. I'm Marion Jones and this is City Breaks Berlin, Episode 7, Holocaust and Remembrance. The last episode was all about finding World War II in Berlin, the places you can visit today to learn about what happened. But I quite deliberately left out one huge topic because I thought it deserved an episode to itself, and that is indeed the Holocaust and the way in which it's remembered in Berlin today. I don't think there's a city anywhere in the world to rival Berlin when it comes to its treatment of this subject. As you'll be hearing, there are lots of ways in the city to find out about what happened, to remember those who were victims, and it's very much still ongoing. So many more names and stories to uncover. All of this is the reason why so many people interested in history go to Berlin, It's also very much about the present. Don't forget, don't forget. What does this mean for our lives today? And it looks to the future too. Research is ongoing, new things are being discovered. So then, the plan for the episode, a little bit of history to set things into context, and then a visit to several places in Berlin where the story is told in its different ways and remembrance is encouraged. So they will include, of course, the Holocaust Memorial in central Berlin, Sachsenhausen, the concentration camp just outside the city, and a number of other smaller, perhaps less well-known memorials. Most of them particular sites, one of them something which is spread all over the streets of Berlin. So, to look back at the history, from the moment in 1933 when Hitler became Chancellor, the rise of anti-Semitism accelerated and in less than a decade took on completely horrific proportions. In 1934, for example, a couple of laws passed, the Reich Citizenship Law, which made the difference between Reichsbürger, so those of pure German blood as it was seen, and everybody else, the non-Aryans, who were called something else, Staatsangehörige. So the beginning of the division being cemented into law, and roughly at the same time, also something called the Law for the Protection of German Blood and German Honour, which meant, effectively, that Jews and non-Jews were no longer allowed to marry. That's perhaps a sentence that can slip by unnoticed, but I found some examples of what that actually meant for real people in a book called The House by the Lake by Thomas Harding. It's actually the story of a house just outside Berlin on Lake Wannsee, and all the people who lived in it all through the 20th century. In the 1930s, it was being used as a summer house for his grandmother Elsie, who was a young woman at the time, her siblings and their parents. And here are just three examples that he gave. So one of Elsie's friends, a man, was in love with a girl who wasn't Jewish. Immediate problems for them, and Elsie's response was to invite them to make use of her flat in central Berlin so they could continue their relationship, knowing what penalties she was risking for breaking the law. Hard labour, possibly even imprisonment. Thomas Harding also describes how Elsie's two brothers, so his two great-uncles, were forced to leave school simply because they were Jewish, and how, when they walked down the street of Berlin, people would shout out at them, Dirty Jew. Just near the house, which they used as a summer house or a holiday home, was the Wannsee Strandbad, so a big bathing area on Lake Wannsee at which suddenly appeared a sign which read, Juden ist der Zutritt untersagt, which means entry is denied to Jewish people. Gradually the laws tightened for Jews. They weren't allowed to practice as doctors or lawyers. 
Soon they weren't allowed to teach in the schools. If they were business owners, they were boycotted. Big, well-known Jewish shops like Wertheim and the Kardewe, the Kaufhausters Westens, saw a tailing off of customers. And, much more sinisterly, raids and roundups began. Police would suddenly appear in Jewish areas like the Scheinenviertel, enter people's houses and take them away. Jews were encouraged by the government to emigrate. They were easily given exit documents. But there was also something called the Reichsfluchtsteuer, which was a tax they were charged before they could leave, meaning that yes, they could get out of the country, but they would have to leave their wealth behind. That too affected Elsie and the rest of the Alexander family. The young adults made it out to Switzerland, to London, but for their parents it was a problem. The father was a doctor, he needed to sell his clinic to pay all the tax that he would be charged for leaving the country, but that was difficult. The staff were Jewish, the patients were largely Jewish, nobody would buy it. And then in 1938, the Kristallnacht, known in English as the Night of Broken Glass. The night when violence broke out on a much larger scale. It was November the 9th, and a telegram was sent by the Gestapo to all the police units, stating the following, quote, In shortest order, actions against Jews, and especially their synagogues, will take place in all of Germany. These are not to be interfered with. And sure enough, two days and nights followed when more than a thousand synagogues were burnt down or badly damaged. Thousands of Jewish businesses were wrecked. Some 90 Jews were killed. Jewish hospitals and schools and cemeteries were all vandalised. 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and imprisoned in the concentration camps at Dachau, Buchenwald and, just outside Berlin, Sachsenhausen. Here's part of an eyewitness account written by Inge Deutschkorn, a survivor of the Berlin Kristallnacht, who wrote about it in her book called Ich trug den gelben Stern, I wore the yellow star. Quote, On the morning of that 10th of November, the news came flooding in. All hell had broken out on the streets of Berlin. The previous evening, armed with axes, hatches and clubs, SA men had smashed the windows of the Jewish stores, easily recognised because they were marked Yuda, causing terrible destruction. In the stores they ripped out drawers, scattered clothing, broken furniture, smashed and trampled crockery, misshapen hats. Thick swathes of smoke hung above Fasanenstrasse, where the synagogue was. We didn't dare to go any closer. We already knew that all synagogues had been set alight and burnt down by the, quotation marks, people's spontaneous rage, as they had said on the radio. The police and fire brigade stood by without intervening. It is possible in all of this to find a few little glimmers of something positive. It's believed, for example, that some 1,700 Jews managed to survive in Berlin throughout the war, living in hiding often shielded by their neighbours who helped them hide, brought them food, told them about impending arrests, helped them to get forged papers so they could escape. And on the night when the synagogue in Berlin burnt down, Kristallnacht, there was one policeman, Otto Belgart, who threatened the thugs with a pistol so that they ran away, and then called the fire brigade, who put the fire out. The inside of the synagogue was badly damaged, but the main building is still there today that lovely golden dome that you can see from quite a distance in the Scheunenviertel. I'll be coming to talk more about that in a later episode. So, once the war itself started, 
Of course, things got worse and worse, and one particularly sinister event took place on the 20th of January 1942, because that was the date of the Wannsee Conference. So the Wannsee is a lake just outside Berlin, to which all the important government ministers of the day were called to discuss what they called, quote, the final solution to the Jewish question. There was much talk during the day over chilling topics like who counted as a Jew? What about the children of mixed marriages? How about people who converted to Judaism? Or descendants of such people? There was also much discussion about transport methods and concentration camps and how to organise it all. Listen to this again from The House at the Lake by Thomas Harding. Quote, it was at this meeting, and shrouded in the highest secrecy, that a blueprint was agreed for the extermination of European Jewry. The decisions made at the Wannsee Conference were soon put into action, and could be seen not only in the streets of Berlin, Frankfurt and Hamburg, but also in those of Amsterdam, Paris and Budapest. Across Europe, Jews were seized from their houses and places of work, and then transported on mysterious trains to the, quotation marks, East. This too was described by Inge Deutschhorn in her book I Wore the Yellow Star. She writes of the police vans speeding through the streets of Berlin, stopping outside particular buildings and running inside to march someone off, put them into the van and drive away. Quote, they were collecting the last Jews left in Berlin. They dragged them out of their homes and out of the factories, wherever they found them, and they took them with them just as they were, in pyjamas, in their work clothes, without coats. Watching from the window, I saw them. I can still see them now, as if frozen by shock, as they were shoved into vans by the policemen, SS men, plainclothes men. Quick, quick, they hurried them on. The police vans picked them up, drove away, returning again empty. And so, coming on then to places in Berlin which you can visit today to learn more about these horrific stories, I want to start with Sachsenhausen the former concentration camp, now a memorial site, which is about 35 kilometres north of Berlin and which you can visit by taking an S1 train to Orianenburg and then when you get out it's about two kilometres on from there and there is a bus. The Nazis began building Sachsenhausen in 1936, so the same year that they were holding the Olympics in the city. On the one hand they had turned Berlin into a showcase that the whole world could look at and hopefully be impressed, and at the same time they were building a prison camp just outside the city which, as Oliver Hilmers put it in his book Berlin 1936, would not, quote, under any circumstances be shown to international guests. More than 200,000 people were interned at Sachsenhausen between 1936 and the end of the war in 1945. They included political opponents of the Nazis, members of groups they deemed inferior, so the Jews, Sinti and Roma people, homosexuals, and tens of thousands of them died here, from hunger, from disease because of the dreadful conditions, from exhaustion because of forced labour, from medical experiments, or quite simply because they were murdered. Even right at the end of the war the horrors continued, so in April 1945, just as the Soviets were arriving in Berlin, the 30,000 people left in the camp were marched off in what became known as the death marches, as so many of them died en route. And what it meant was that the next day, when 
Soviet and Polish troops arrived to liberate the camp, they were not there. Truly then, a place of horror. And it has been left as much as possible as it was, so that those who visit can get some understanding of what it was like, and you can walk around the site, and there are a number of different exhibitions there. I've picked out just a couple to mention. You can visit, for example, Barrack 38, in which almost 400 people were crammed, although it had been built for about 150, used initially for Jewish prisoners, although many of them were later deported to Auschwitz. And the exhibition in there is entitled Jewish Prisoners in Sachsenhausen Concentration Camp, 1936 to 1945. It's arranged chronologically, and it tells the story of the camp through 74 individual lives, the focus being on all the different groups of people who were incarcerated here. In Barrack 39, there's an exhibition called The Everyday Life of Prisoners in Sachsenhausen Concentration Camp. Largely, the barrack has been left as it was, with just one addition, six display cases, each of which has a film inside, each about three minutes in length, outlining different aspects of daily life in the camp, using the prisoners' own words and illustrating them with photographs and enlargements of drawings done by some of them. You can visit one of the cell blocks too, described as a place shrouded in secrecy and the site of cruel mistreatment and murders. So there's information there about the dreadful deeds that were done, again using the words and in some cases drawings by former prisoners, juxtaposed with wording from the orders given by the SS. I think perhaps everyone should visit a concentration camp at some point in their life. And if you do go out to Sachsenhausen, You'll be aware, I think, of the care which has been taken to preserve the memories of what happened and leaving no room for doubt. Coming back into central Berlin, the main memorial is, of course, the Holocaust Memorial, officially known as the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe, and sited quite deliberately close to the Brandenburg Gate and the Parliament, so right in the heart of Berlin, and of such a size that you cannot possibly miss it. I think it was in the Lonely Planet guide that I saw it described as being football field sized. And it is, I think it's fair to say, unlike any other memorial. So it's a large space. It's got 2,711 different concrete slabs in it. It's built on a slight slope. So as you wander between them, you feel quite deliberately a little bit uncertain, a little bit disorientated. There's no text or explanation something the writer David Hare approved of. When he was asked why he thought that was, he said, because anything extra would be too much and not enough. There is on the site too an underground information centre with a timeline explaining exactly what happened, information on the victims, of whom there were six million, but focusing very much on individuals and families. There are lots and lots of documents and photographs, diaries, farewell letters, There is a separate room called the Room of Names and in there the names of victims are projected onto the walls giving their birth and death dates and a little bit of information about each one. Berlin authorities put all of this together in collaboration with Yad Vashem so Israel's main Holocaust memorial and the level of detail is quite amazing. Of course it's salutary to stand in there and look at the names as they appear and disappear But there's also a database that you can consult on screen, so if you're looking for particular names, 
you will be able to find them. I don't think everyone makes it down into the information centre, but I do think that anybody who goes to the memorial above ground is going to remember what they saw. It is just very striking. Here's a description of it by the writer Chloria Regis in her book, Book of Clouds. Quote, Despite the hundreds of possible exits and entrances, it was hard not to feel an immediate wave of claustrophobia and disorientation, and wherever I looked, I saw dark pillars, some only half a metre high, others looming overhead. The sloping ground made it hard to secure a foothold, and every few metres I found myself grabbing onto the slabs to steady myself, although I had the feeling that at any moment they might treacherously tilt away. It was like walking among 2,711 upended sarcophagi, 2,711 souls awaiting judgment in an ad hoc graveyard devoid of markings or inscriptions. The Holocaust Memorial opened in, I think it was 2005, and shortly after that, two further memorials followed. In 2008, the Memorial to Homosexuals Persecuted Under Nazism, situated on the edge of the Tiergarten, just south of the Holocaust Memorial itself. It's a slanted concrete column set in a sandpit, and if you look inside, you'll find there's a video playing on a loop of a same-sex couple kissing. In fact, two couples, two men and two women. So again, people who were persecuted brought right into the centre of Berlin and accepted. And likewise, in 2012, the memorial to Sinti and Roma victims of Nazism, also on the edge of the Tier Park, just north of the Brandenburg Gate, a circular pool of water with a triangular stone in the centre the triangle shape being a reference to the badges in different colours which prisoners in the camps were forced to wear. So a pink triangle for gays, a yellow one for Jews. And set in bronze, just around the pool, the words of a poem by the Roma poet Santino Spinelli called Auschwitz. And then there's a little collection of other memorials in museums in the Scheunenviertel, so the area of Berlin just north of Alexanderplatz, which was in the early part of the 20th century, the main Jewish quarter in the city. Most notably, perhaps, is the Weit Museum, or to give it its proper title, the Museum Blindenwerkstatt Otto Weit. So Otto Weit was an employer who ran what was known as the Blind Workshop, a broom and brush factory, really, which employed a lot of blind and deaf Jews. Otto Weit was known to Jews all over the area as somebody who was brave enough to take the risk and try and help them. He managed to protect quite a number of his staff from being deported. He got them false papers, he helped them hide and supplied them with food, and it's thought that he even used to bribe members of the Gestapo so that they wouldn't investigate his workshop too closely. The workshop today has been left pretty much as it was, with its simple wooden floors and the original equipment, but also it's been turned into a museum to remember this wonderful man. Black and white photographs from the time, including a picture of Otto Weit himself, letters and poems and postcards from his workers, describing their fear and their desperation, thanking him too, for example, for food parcels which he sent to people in the concentration camp of Theresienstadt. And you can see too the small windowless room in the furthest corner of the building, with an entrance hidden by a wardrobe. It was in there that people from the workshop hid and there are framed photographs of some of them hanging on the walls. 
as part of the same complex. This is in the Rosenthaler Straße, number 39. I'll put the address and the links to both museums in the show notes. So in the same complex, there is also the Anne Frank Centrum with an exhibition called All About Anne. She wasn't closely connected to Berlin. She grew up in Frankfurt in Germany and when her family fled from there, went into hiding in Amsterdam. But her story is such a graphic illustration of persecution and its effect, particularly on young people, that it's told here too. And the Anne Frank Centrum also runs walking tours of the area called Traces of Jewish Life. Not too far from Rosenthalestrasse, in another road called Rosenstrasse, is something called the Block der Frauen, or Block of Women, a memorial to an uprising which took place in 1943 when there was a huge wave of deportations and arrests, some 2,000 Jews, mostly men, who were partners with non-Jewish women, were arrested. Up until then, they had been tolerated. So this was a dreadful new turn of events. They were housed in a building in Rosenstrasse, while the authorities decided what to do with them. And on the 27th of February, 1943, a large group of women, their partners mainly, and their children, arrived to protest and demand their release. This went on for a week until about 600 women were engaged, coming every day to protest, and eventually, and perhaps amazingly, they were successful. The protest had been completely peaceful, and the end result was that the prisoners were released. You can't overstate how brave it was, and how they were risking their lives to save their loved ones. And so today, in the little park in Rosenstrasse, there is a sculpture which was designed to serve as a memorial and monument to their courage. It's three large red sandstone blocks carved with Jewish texts and symbols forming a semicircle around a couple lying in each other's arms. And just nearby in the park, two other parts of the installation which reflect the day-to-day discrimination suffered by Jews and the consequences it had for their culture. So there's a man standing holding a broken violin, which represents the Jewish culture that was destroyed by the Nazis, and there's also a sculptured figure sitting on a park bench, a reminder, of course, that Jews were forbidden to sit on benches in public parks. All of those, then, are individual places you can visit, but there's one more form of memorial I haven't mentioned yet, and it's one which is not one place, it's spread all across the city, an artwork called in German the Stolpersteine. So a Stein is a stone. Stolpern means to stumble. So a Stolperstein is a stone that you stumble over. In fact, they're not stones, they're little brass plaques. They're set into the pavement, all over Berlin, and each one is in memory of a particular person. They're usually placed outside the house where the person lived, or maybe the place where they went to school, and their function is to commemorate the victims of the Shoah, so the persecution of the Jews, and to keep their memory alive in Berlin today. It's not just in Berlin, by the way, they're in cities all over Europe, I think, these days. So then, one Stolperstein is about 10 centimetres square, and it's made of polished brass. It'll have an inscription on it, which reads in German, Here lived, followed by the name and year of birth of the person it's remembering. Then there'll be the name of a concentration camp, such as Auschwitz or Theresienstadt, and at the bottom, the date when the person died. Notably, every single one has been made by hand, because it was decided that 
mass producing them would somehow be wrong. Each one is made by a person for a different person. Keep a lookout for them, because when you find one, you are being made to remember an individual killed in the Holocaust, and chillingly, you often find a number altogether outside a building, reminding you that sometimes it was a whole family who were taken away and murdered. There is a website to go with the whole project, which is absolutely fascinating. I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's basically called Stolpersteiner Berlin. And the first thing you'll see is a map with little dots on it for every Stolperstein in Berlin. You can click on any one of them and up will come the name and the details, the information that's on the Stolperstein itself. And if you click on the name, then up comes a second page of details with as much biography about that person as has yet been discovered. So I came across the information for a family who lived in Großbärenstraße at number 92 in the Kreuzberg district of Berlin. The four stones were laid in January 2010 and one of them reads as follows. Keim Holm, 1902. Born on the 7th of October 1902 in Petrikau. I think that's in present-day Poland. Deported on the 14th of October 1943 to Auschwitz and murdered in Auschwitz. And next to it are three more Stolpersteiner for his wife, Machla, and their two children, Max and Ruth. When I clicked on Machla to find out more, I discovered that she too had been born in Poland, moved to Germany as a child, and married Keim at 19. Their son, Max, was born when she was 23, and their daughter, Ruth, a few years later, when she was 27. The information tells me that both the parents worked in Otto Weitz's brush factory, that both of them were arrested in 1938 during the pogrom, but released, and that they immediately set about trying to save to leave Germany. I imagine they weren't very well paid, and that was going to be difficult. And in 1943, they asked their boss, Otto Weitz, for advice. He agreed to hide them in the secret room at the back of his workshop, but a few months later they were betrayed to the Gestapo, who raided the house on October the 14th, 1943, arrested all four of them and sent them to Auschwitz, where all four were murdered. The parents would have been in their 40s and the children teenagers, Ruth the youngest, aged 13. Elsewhere on the website, I discovered that the Berlin Stolpersteiner project is ongoing. Each of Berlin's 12 boroughs runs a project to research the backgrounds and the fates of the victims, to lay new stones when information becomes available, and to take care of all the brass plates. It's a Europe-wide project these days, and the aim of the project is one that's a fitting one to finish the episode with, I think, simply two words, never forget. So that is all then for today's episode. I hope I've left you with lots to think about and lots of ideas for places that you could visit in Berlin, which perhaps you might not have thought of. And in next week's episode, we are continuing with World War II, but this time moving on to the after effects for the German population in its entirety, and particularly for the people of Berlin. I'm going to call the episode Finding the Berlin Wall in the city today going to talk about what it was, when and how it went up, what the effects of it were, and where you can find bits of it, literally in some cases, metaphorically in others, in Berlin today. So I hope very much that you will join me for that. Can I just mention also that the blog is underway? 
For each episode that I release, I'm endeavouring to put up a blog post too, a summary of all the information, links and reading ideas, everything you need to get the most out of the episode. So do have a look at that. That's on the website too, www.citybreaks.co.uk. You'll find the two tabs at the top, Podcasts Berlin and Blog Posts Berlin. Under Podcasts, of course, there are lots of other cities too. Blog Posts, a bit more of a work in progress. You'll find the Paris series has been started. The others, not yet. Okay, so going to leave it there for today. It just remains for me to thank you very much for listening and to say goodbye both of which we can do in German, of course. Also, vielen Dank fürs Zuhören und auf Wiederhören. 